In Session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show and suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 3104410555. Before I do uh, the summary or discussion for the book for this past week, I wanted to announce the book for this week. It is actually a special book because I will be having the author in the studio next Monday night to talk about the book. And the book itself is slightly different from the books in the past, which I'll get into. So the name of the book is Self-Hell by Sarvanaz Amonat. And Sarvanaz Amonat is going to be joining me next week in the studio. And she wrote this book, which is like a picture book for your inner child, as I believe she describes it. And um, it has different pictures uh, that depict different emotions. And it's very uh, intense. And I've read through the book many, many times. And each time it brings up emotions for me, which is exactly what you would want a book like this to do. And you can get the book at sarvanazamonat.com. Um, I'll post a picture of a book and that link on my various social media pages. And I hope you will order the book um, because it's wonderful and to support her and also so you can be involved in the discussion next week because really um, it's more of a picture book than words. So without seeing the pictures, it's hard to really know what we're talking about, but I'm looking forward to having her next week to talk about some of her motivation and inspiration in writing the book and discussing it in more detail. So that's Self-Hell by Sarvanaz Amonat, and I hope you will join me in reading this book for next Monday's show. Uh, June 26th, where I'll have her in the studio to discuss this book. But getting back to the book for this past week, which was Flow uh, by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Um, this is the book, it says Flow, um, which looks at optimal experience, the psychology of optimal experience. So what does that mean? So basically looking at this book, um, many people I'm sure are familiar with this concept of flow. Uh, I've talked about it before, many psychologists do, because the research they did to find this uh, state of being, essentially, or state of consciousness, um, really was revolutionary, something that people were experiencing, but by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's research with other collaborations and by really putting a label on it or a name to it, um, it allowed us to understand it much more deeply. So let's look at what flow is. So the human mind, we can think about how much information we can take in at a given time. And one way of looking at this is to say we can take in se seven bits of information 
at any time. And we can process something in about 1 18th of a second. So that would mean that at every second we have 126 bits of information that we can take in. And as he discusses in the book, for example, to have a conversation with another person, you need about 40 beats, uh, bits per second to do that. So it takes up that much of your mental energy, so to speak. Now, when people enter a state of flow, what happens is that they're using so much and their mind is so engaged in the activity that they're doing that they are essentially using all of their available consciousness at the task at hand, to focus on the task at hand. And because of that, they actually lose a sense of themselves. They can lose a sense of time. Um, and they are just so wrapped up in what they are doing that they experience this feeling of flow. And he came up with that term because so many people that he interviewed described this experience as flowing out of them. So he called it the flow experience. So how do we achieve this state? We can look at it another way. Uh, you can draw a graph where on one axis we're measuring skills. So you're basically your ability to do a certain task. And the other one is challenges or the challenge that it has. Now, if you're doing something that you have a lot of skills to do, but it's not very challenging, you become bored or even we can say depressed, but this is a boring feeling. For example, if you are an expert tennis player and you're playing versus someone who's an amateur, it's going to be boring for you. You're not very excited. Now, on the other end, if something is very challenging, the challenge far exceeds your level of skills, this is going to create anxiety. So this would be the flip. If you're a tennis player who doesn't know how to play at all and you're playing as a professional, it's just going to be very anxiety provoking. You're not really going to enjoy that experience. What you want to do is to find activities, tasks that intersect at that place where your skills and the challenge are at the optimal point. And that's why it's called the optimal experience and also what he calls when he puts it on a graph, the flow channel. If I can find something that uses my skills and the challenge meets my skills exactly where they are, maybe even pushes me a little bit, then I can enter this state of flow where I'm capable, but I have to really use everything I can to get it done. But also the challenge makes it exciting. So when we enter this flow experience, and you can do it really doing almost anything, and that's what the book talks about. He discusses work, he discusses your relationships and interactions, even your leisure time. We find that you can make anything very enjoyable because you're so engaged in what you're doing that you actually feel really the state of enjoyment or even really what he says, what's going to create happiness in your life by doing many activities in your life in this state of flow. Now, one thing that's worth mentioning is there's sort of a myth that we have that really the flow concept goes against. And that is that we have this idea that to not do anything is the goal or to do little is the goal. Oh, the best life is if you can just relax all day long and not do anything or just watch TV all day and not have to worry about anything. We think that's the aim. Or if you're working, the less work you can do, the better. Or if you're doing something, the less effort you can put into it, the better. We have this idea that work is this outside force that's put on us and our job or goal should be to do as little of it as possible, to get out of it as we can, 
and to put the least effort in while we're doing it. But what this research shows us is exactly the opposite. What makes something enjoyable and what even what makes life enjoyable is when we're actually giving so much of ourselves or using so much of ourselves that we're all used up. Everything in us is being consumed or at least engaged, might be a better word, in what we are doing. You are, for example, um, a surgeon, that's an example he uses a lot in the book, is so engaged in the surgery, making sure that she is doing everything correctly, things are going well, the blood flow and everything is going in a smooth pattern and harmony and all the actions she's doing along with the patient and how the patient is responding, that she enjoys it to the point where when you're in the state of flow, people say itself, the action is rewarding to the point that although they might get paid for what they, they are doing and do it for a living, they would do it for free because it is so enjoyable. Again, not because they're doing so little or because it's so easy, but actually because it is challenging, but a challenge that they can face and that engages them completely. That's exactly what we should be striving for. And so when it comes to every arena in our life, but especially in your work, you should ask yourself, does it give me a state of flow or do I create a state of flow in my life? Now you might think, well, I'm not a surgeon or I'm not a tennis player to achieve a state of flow. My job doesn't lend itself to that. Well, that's not necessarily the case because as he describes in this book and in other talks I've talked about or I heard him talk about this book and this concept of flow, you can achieve flow doing virtually anything. So I remember in, in this book, it talks about a butcher and the butcher is in such a state of flow because he says that he's at one with the piece of meat. He have, even understands the body of this animal completely and knows how to cut it. And he does it in a way to make sure he does it as efficiently as possible with as few cuts as possible and to do it as perfectly as he can each time. And in that way, he's in a sort of competition with himself to keep improving to keep doing better and keep getting better at it. So you can be a butcher, you can be a surgeon, you can be doing whatever it is, but if you find a way to engage yourself fully in what you're doing, you can reach this state of flow, which is an incredible feeling, and as he puts it, can lead to really what happiness is, or what we can call a state of happiness. As he describes in the book, most people think, especially in Western culture, that the acquisition of things will make us happy from material goods or even good looks or um, certain types of vacations. That's what's going to make you happy. But the research finds that this is not the case. You don't get happy by doing those things. We get happy actually when we're engaged in activities that make us feel this way. He doesn't talk directly about the concept of mindfulness. He does talk about meditation and yoga and some other things. But I was surprised because to me, um, almost everything he's describing sounds a lot like mindfulness. So I'm, I'm not going to say that flow and mindfulness are one and the same, but I would say that you need to have mindfulness or to be able to practice mindfulness in order to experience flow because you have to be able to focus everything on that present moment. And one of the things that's nice about it, and of course, by getting into flow, you are unable to think about other things, but that's where I'm saying there is this overlap. If I'm so consumed in the moment, I can't think about the past and become depressed and I can't worry about the future. And actually I'm so consumed that people that are in this state, they say they almost forget about themselves. They don't even exist. So there's no room for self-consciousness. I'm not worried about how I look or if people will judge me in this way or that way. I'm so consumed by the activity that I can, I forget all of that and it feels so good. 
And in this sense, it's wonderful because people say that they lose themselves in that moment. They're losing themselves in that experience. But at the same time, after the fact, they feel that they're even, they've expanded. Their sense of self has expanded. They've connected with the world. They've seen themselves in a different life, a different light, which is quite an incredible experience. But we can see that there is quite an overlap between flow and mindfulness. Only when I'm consumed by the present and totally focused on the present am I going to be in a flow-like state. So yet again, another reason that things like meditation can be very important because as he puts it, to achieve flow, you need to be able to concentrate and be able to focus your concentration. If you, like most people in today's day and age, think you need to multitask, you're never going to achieve the state of flow. Your mind is going to be all over the place and no one activity is going to be consuming you and allowing you to enter into that state. And it's not just about work, but even in a conversation, next time you're talking to someone, if you actually try to take them in completely, every word they say, looking at their facial expressions, looking at the way they're expressing themselves, where do I think they're going with this? What's, what's happening here? What do I think they really mean? You're actually going to be able to consume yourself so fully that you will engage in that conversation in a totally different way. Or especially if you're playing with your child, you can definitely achieve a state of flow. I work with some parents that will say, oh, you know, my kids, it's kids games. How can I enjoy that? But absolutely you can. If you allow yourself to get so engaged in that activity, you can enjoy it even more than your child, or you can at least enjoy it as much as they do, which is something that you'll share together and will make the experience more rewarding and enjoyable for you, but also contribute to that relationship. So we should all be seeking to reach this state of flow, this state of the optimal experience. And as he discusses throughout the book, if we're able to find it in many areas of our life, not just our work, but our relationships, leisure time, whatever else we can do, then we're more likely going to achieve a state of happiness in our life or feel happier about what we are doing. Again, not it's not in having things that we feel happy. And it's not in doing less that we feel happy. Two things that people, these myths that people have. I think if you ask most people, they think if you get rich doing not very much, you're the winner in life. But we know that's not how it works. If you actually give more, if you're more engaged and you do more work, you're going to feel better if the work is something that you feel good about. And especially if the work is something that puts you in a state of flow. So uh, it's a great book to read because it's a classic and this concept of flow is very important. One of the, I think, more important contributions to psychology in the most or more recent decades. So if you haven't read it already, I hope you will. Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. The name sounds nothing like what I said, so you'll have to look it up. But it's Flow, the Psychology of Optimal Experience. And again, the book for this week is Self-Hell by Sarvanaz Amonat. And I'm looking forward to having her in the studio next Monday to talk about that book. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui, studio number 3104410555. In the last segment, I talked about the book Flow, 
the psychology of optimal experience. And it made me think about another concept in some ways related in the sense that it's about uh, achieving some kind of performance or achieving certain things. And that is this idea of that we saw in the book, The Secret, and other books like it and other ideas like it, that the law of uh, attraction, that if you basically ask the universe for something, you're going to get it. Now, I definitely take issue with this mindset or this approach to life. Um, and so I still think, well, it's okay to think positive. What's wrong with that? And I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking positive. And there's also uh, nothing wrong with being an optimist. I'm okay with that. Of course, what's more important to be, make sure you're facing reality and be a realist. But my issue with this is that what sometimes people, when they approach things this way, they make, they kind of take a few steps in the right direction, but then they stop when it actually gets really important. So let me explain in this way. When we look at things like the secret or law of attraction, a lot of people that uh, give this type of an argument say, if you want something, let's say you want a good relationship, you need to really think about it and ask the universe for it, and the universe will then give it to you. Or if you want a good job, you want lots of money, uh, whatever it is, you have to ask the universe for it. And so some people will do things like, maybe you've heard of things like a vision board and they'll create a board and they put all pictures and words that relate to their goal or somehow uh, puts their goal out there. They say, well, by having this vision board, this is then going to give me my goal because now I've made it very clear to myself in the universe what I want and I'm going to get it now because that's how the law of attraction works. I was getting in my own way of getting what I wanted because I wasn't asking the universe in the right way or really being clear on that. And now that I'm clear, I'm going to get it. Now, this is the part I don't like because then they stop. Because the first part I like, I, I've never myself done a vision board itself, but visualizing a goal and making your goal very clear are very important. That's actually a very important part of achieving what you want to achieve is to make it clear what you want to achieve. Essentially, it's like saying, well, if you want to go somewhere, you need to know where you want to end up, right? If you're taking a car and you want to go somewhere, you have to know your destination. And then you can also have a map, which can be like your plan for how you want to get to your goal. But you need to have the map and have a destination to get there. So it's very good to have that vision board. And you can imagine yourself, okay, I'm going to drive to San Francisco. I can imagine myself there. And also because of that, I can understand what my path is to get there. But most people stop even before they create the plan. They just say, I just want it and now I'm going to get it. Because the visualizing is great and very good. And even there's research showing how it can be um, helpful. If you visualize your goal, close your eyes, imagine the goal in as many senses as you can, make it as vivid as you can, this can help you in achieving your goal. But this idea of the law of attraction just then stops there. And that's the part that's missing. Because to achieve any goal that's worth having, it takes lots of effort and hard work, preparation, planning, replanning, and all sorts of other challenges that need to be overcome to get there. And that's where people stop. And even in the book flow, he discusses that, that it takes great effort. And even I should mention, to achieve a state of flow or be able to even get into state of flow, 
in almost any type of skill or activity we're talking about, it takes lots of practice to get there first. You don't just start in flow or at least at the highest level of optimal experience. It takes time to get there. And to achieve any goal worth achieving, it's going to take hard work. So I'm, I'm all about visualizing it. And you can create a vision board if that's what works for you. You can write it out. You can discuss it to a friend. You can close your eyes and visualize it, whatever that may be. But what's missing is the recognition that without hard work, you're not going to get there. And I think that's what I saw a lot of people doing. They thought, well, okay, now I should be getting it. And people that follow that type of philosophy say, well, if you're not getting your goal after visualizing it and asking the universe, then you must be asking the wrong way or you're not clear enough in your intention or whatever it might be, not recognizing that that's not the problem. The problem is now you have to do the work. No one gets a degree by closing their eyes and hoping for it. You have to go to class, write papers you don't necessarily like, study for tests, work hard, go through stress, and then years later, you get the degree after years of consistent work. No one gets a degree by visualizing it, hoping the universe is going to give it to you. It just doesn't work that way. So yes, good things come to those who wait, but not just who wait, but the part that means waiting is that you're patient. If you want to, again, just using this analogy of getting a degree, it takes patience to get a degree, but not just waiting as in waiting inside of your home, hoping that you get the degree, but that you keep putting hard work and you actually might not get a reward for a while. You might get the smaller goals, like you get a good grade on a test and then a good grade in a class, and then that keeps on building. But it's not that you're just waiting. That's the misnomer there and that uh, type of that saying that people say, well, good things come to those who wait. So I need to just now wait. I've done my part by visualizing and now I just sit back and let the rewards come my way. No, good things come to those who work hard. Good things come to those who persevere. So yes, close your eyes, do whatever you want and make that path and that goal very clear. Make a plan to get there, but then it's time for you to work hard and persist to get there. And this goes back to the myth I talked about in the previous segment. This idea that one of the goals of life is to get as much as you can by doing as little as you can. That's what everyone is trying to do. Oh, I, I got a good grade on that class and I barely studied. Or I make so much money and I don't do anything and I make money. We think that's going to make us happy. I like this story that I've heard, actually heard my father say before about someone who died and he didn't know if he was going to heaven or hell. And he, you know, wakes up in the next world and he says, oh, wow, it's, it's a beautiful place. He's laying on a bed and everything's so beautiful and there's all these people there waiting on him and serving him hand and foot. What do you want? What do you need? Well, you want to watch television? Oh, we're going to change the channel for you. What do you want? Whatever you want to do, we're going to take care of it for you. And this guy thinks, oh, I must have been a pretty good person because God has sent me to heaven. But after a few days of living there, he starts to realize things aren't as much like he wanted them to be. He says, oh, let me go for a walk. They say, no, no, you can't walk. You have to sit here. Okay, no, well, let me, you know, read a book. No, no, you can't read. Just sit here. We're going to take care of everything for you. And he finds out he can't do anything. And he comes to this realization, I'm actually in hell. Hell is not doing anything. Hell is the lack of productivity, of not being able to see yourself as successful, as seeing yourself as 
strong, as powerful, as capable of doing things. And instead of calling it hell, we can call that depression, to call it something we experience here on earth. When we are not productive, we become depressed. And of course, the downward spiral of depression, when we're depressed, we also become less productive, which creates that downward spiral. But that's how we feel. When When people lose their job, Yes, they sometimes lose status, they lose uh, the money that they were making, the way they felt about having a job. But another problem is that they don't have work, something that takes up their time and they get to feel productive. I've seen this with a lot of graduates also. They finish school, and yes, sometimes they don't know what to do, and that can create some anxiety. But losing that structure in a place where they constantly were doing things and seeing themselves as productive is very hurtful and harmful, and they don't feel very good. So it's very important to teach ourselves and to teach our children also that hard work is something that we're lucky to get to do. Unfortunately, most people have had to do hard work that they didn't want to do or for someone else. Throughout history, there's so many stories and um, instances where people were doing work either for no cost as a slave or low cost or doing something that was for someone else's goal. A few people got to choose what everyone did and everyone had to follow suit and do what they wanted them to do. So we still carry this with us, that work is something we're supposed to try to get out of. You know, you see TV shows, movies, anything kind of a comedic thing is always about the boss being bad and trying to somehow get out of work, get out of doing things. And that's what we're supposed to strive for. But it's very important to teach your children the value of hard work, not because it's painful, which is something what people think, just like how people think giving is better than receiving because giving is more painful. No, giving is better than receiving because through giving, as Eric Fromm talks about in The Art of Loving, I get to see my own strength and vitality and I feel good through giving. So it's not because it's more painful or it's harder that giving is somehow more noble, but actually you get to feel better in giving than in receiving. The same is true of hard work. Don't teach your kids hard work is good. You have to hard do hard work to be successful to make money, and that's the only reason why hard work is important. Show them the hard work itself feels good. To get better at doing something feels great. Look, you know, you tried, you know, the tennis analogy from before. You could barely hit the ball over the net. Now you can hit it over because you've practiced so many times, really smoothly and with much more speed. That's something that feels good. We want to instill in them that hard work is something exciting. It's something that we're lucky to do. And in the book Flow, he talks about these people he interviewed sometimes living in um, some villages or places that were not very developed, but that people really couldn't distinguish work from the rest of life. And they were very happy. They enjoyed the things they had to do. And actually he would ask them, if you didn't, if you had money and you didn't have to work, you didn't have to do these things, everything was okay. What do you think you would do? And it's almost funny, but they said, I would do the same thing I do every day. They enjoy it. They didn't see it as work that they have to do, that I'm unlucky and if I just one day had enough money, I wouldn't do. They see it as something they enjoyed. They wanted to do the things that they were doing. So it's important to remember that hard work is what we are lucky to do. And coming back to this idea of the secret and the law of attraction, it's important to recognize that if we want something, just asking for it is not enough. Just visualizing, although the first step and a very good first step is not enough. Once we visualize it, that's when the real hard work begins. 
And again, hard work, not that it's bad, not that we're unlucky to get to do it, but that actually we're lucky to get to then engage in a process to work towards a goal that we feel is, is meaningful and means something to us, that we value the achievement of that goal. And now that I've created it for myself, I've created that vision, I get to make that vision a reality. The universe doesn't give it to me. I, through my hard work and dedication, make that vision board come to life. No one else is going to do it for us. All right, we're going into our last break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I wanted to talk about a very sad case. Uh, many of you maybe have heard about a case that went to trial and the verdict was just given last week in the case of Michelle Carter. Now, what this case is about is that Michelle Carter was accused of encouraging her boyfriend, Conrad Roy III, to kill himself to uh, take his own life by um, poisoning himself with carbon monoxide sitting in a truck while the engine ran, I believe, in a garage. I don't know the details of that. But she was encouraging him to do so. And she was actually found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. I want to make sure I'm getting that right. Yes. And could face up to 20 years in prison. Now, this case uh, got a lot of attention for a lot of reasons. Um, to begin with, it's just a, a very sad story, but to hear of a girlfriend encouraging her boyfriend to kill himself and also for there to be a involuntary manslaughter accusation put on someone who wasn't there when the person was killed is in a way potentially going to set legal precedent. It's one of the first cases of its kind. So essentially there were texts going back and forth that show that he was not sure about doing it, and she was encouraging him to do so, which is really heartbreaking. The one explanation I heard was that she was looking for attention um, that she would get by being the girlfriend whose boyfriend took his own life, uh, which is heartbreaking, but shows, again, something we've talked about on this show a lot, how the lengths people are willing to go to get attention. Uh, I've talked about it before in discussing social media, the lengths people go to get likes and to get follows, and that this can really uh, motivate a lot of their actions and behaviors and things that they're doing. But here we see in a much more extreme and uglier sense that this person was encouraging her own boyfriend to take his own life. And they said it got to the point where almost he was apologizing for not doing so. He kept encouraging her. So here's an exchange they had. He, he said, I'm overthinking. And she said, I thought you wanted to do this. The time is right and you're ready. You just need to do it. You can't keep living this way. You just need to do it like you did last time and not think about it and just do it, babe. You can't keep doing this every day. And... They said that she was found guilty because not only did she encourage him, but she did not ask for help. She knew it was happening, did not inform the police, did not call 
his parents and just let it happen. And it's really heartbreaking. And I just wanted to share the case because um, it really does show the things that we people can do in order to possibly get attention and to get people to make them feel a certain way and the lengths that they're willing to go, but also that we can't joke about these types of things like suicide when we see that these types of things really do happen. I don't want to get into her psychology and what could actually allow someone to get to that point where they're willing to encourage someone to take their life to potentially get some attention or whatever motivations that she had, but that's what she did. And the family, of course, of the victim of the boy were, I don't want to say happy about the verdict. They said they were pleased by the verdict, but of course there's no winners in this type of a case. It's just a tragedy. Of course, this boy is no longer with us. And then this girl might face up to 20 years in prison. So two families really were torn apart by what happened here. Something that uh, really was a tragedy. So I did want to share that case with uh, people and something to think about when we're interacting with people. And I've talked a lot about suicide on this show because I think it is a very important topic and one that I'll bring up again to conclude the show because of this case, that we have to make it easier for people to talk about suicide and also to allow people to have conversations about it and to get help. Uh, help is out there. There is things that we can do to help people feel better, um, but it's about getting them there. Of course, this is an extremely uh, unique case and on one extreme end of the spectrum where someone is pushing someone towards suicide. But what we usually have is the other end is people not talking about it and avoiding talking about it. As a psychologist, it's something you have to be ready to talk about. Uh, and even I know for myself and many therapists, when we were training, it wasn't easy to bring up the topic. It was almost like, you want me to directly ask someone if they want to harm themselves or if they're thinking about harming themselves? And they would say, yes, that's what we want you to do. And that's what you need to do. And it's in essence, your responsibility as a therapist to do so. One of the fears people have is that if I ask about suicide, it's going to push them or give them the idea. Now, in this extreme case, she was literally pushing and encouraging him to do so. But by asking someone if they've thought about harming themselves, you are not pushing them or giving them the idea. Someone who's feeling sad enough to take their own life has already thought about it they don't are not waiting for someone to give them the idea and they think oh that's something i can do it's a place that unfortunately we do go when we feel very down and we start to feel hopeless so that's one concern people have if i bring it up what if i give them the idea and that's something that many therapists in training and my myself would think about it. well what if i bring it up and that then gives them idea how guilty would I feel. But really it's more about the discomfort we have in having the conversation. Again, we try to avoid uncomfortable conversations. And of course, a conversation about suicide is definitely an uncomfortable one, one that's not easy at all to have, one that we would probably want to avoid and not even think about. So we're trying to avoid that conversation. And related to that, we're afraid that we ask and the person maybe will get upset with us or will judge us or will laugh at us for bringing it up and might even get upset. Why did you, how could you think 
I'm suicidal. So we don't want to ask. And a lot of people say, oh, I didn't want to ask because I don't think they are. And, you know, it would just get weird. But I'm inviting you that you have to be willing to get weird or get uncomfortable with people you care about because that's the only way we can help prevent a lot of these suicides from happening is to talk about it. So if you do ask someone, as I always say, and there's obviously really we can break it to two uh, options. One is that they are not suicidal and one is that they are. Well, if they're not suicidal, they'll probably react in a few one of a few ways. One is they might kind of laugh about it if they really don't think about it at all um, and say, no, I'm not doing that bad. Um, But that's okay. I'd much rather be the person that worries about something like that and cares about someone to ask than to not. But also what you've done, which I think is very important, is you've created a bridge. And that's what we do a lot of times when we have a conversation with someone about something or show them that we're willing to talk about certain things. Maybe in that instance, you don't use the bridge. But by bringing up that conversation, you've built this bridge between yourself and the individual, your friend or loved one, whoever it might be, that I'm willing to have this type of a conversation. So if they ever do get to that point or even close to that point, they know that you're someone they can talk to about it. And that can be valuable for some time in the future. So the worst you've done is you've created a bridge with a friend, showed them that I'm willing to talk about uncomfortable things, I'm here for you, and I'm not afraid to have an uncomfortable or awkward conversation because of how much I care about you. And of course, on the other end, if they in fact are suicidal, well, then you could potentially be saving their life. So at worst, maybe you'll have a slight moment of embarrassment or discomfort, and at best, you could be saving someone's life. To me, that would hopefully encourage us to make us more likely to have this type of a conversation, to be willing to ask. And if someone says, yes, I am, well, just know that you're not supposed to now take care of them alone. You're not supposed to solve this issue by yourself. Many people think, oh, well, if they opened up to me, now I have to solve it myself. And that's yet another reason why people don't bring up the conversation. They think, well, what if my friend says yes, now what am I going to do? And now this pressure is on me. But you should let your friend know if they're at that point that they need help. And you do have to try to figure out, well, are they really thinking of doing it in that moment? Are they about to go home and do it? Or is it just something on their mind? And most people are not going to be trained therapists to know how to assess for suicidality appropriately, but to some degree get an idea of what's going on and immediately get other people involved. Not without telling them, so don't go behind their back, but let them know, I think we need to to get some help. Maybe get their parents involved, get some kind of friends or family involved, or in the case of a real emergency, you can call 911 if that seems like the only option, if they really seem like they might act on it very soon. You can go that route and say, you know, this is something we need more help, we have to do something about. And again, you're not supposed to solve the problem all by yourself, but you can follow up with them. If they're now seeing a therapist or they got some kind of help, you can check in to make sure they're doing okay. But I do see this very often. People think they have to be the hero now. Um, Some people even embrace that role. Oh, I'm the only one that she's told or he's never told anyone about this and I have to make sure I take care of them myself. And we might even relish or embrace that role. But that can be very dangerous because one person, especially not a professional, is not going to be able to handle something like this if someone really is suicidal. So get other people involved, get them engaged. There's resources 
that they can um, use, like the suicide hotline, um, which they can call if you really need something immediately. But there's ways that you can help them, and that's what you want to do in the suicide hotline. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline in the United States is 1-800-273-8255. You can have them call that number, but get other people involved. And again, we have to not be afraid to talk about suicide. Most people who have lost a loved one to suicide wish they had done more. Now, a lot of times we can feel guilty when we really couldn't do much more. Usually we have that reaction or that feeling. But very often people know that maybe if I had a conversation, maybe if I just talked about it, maybe if I asked him or her how they were doing or tried to be, do something, maybe it would have made a difference. And I might talk soon about this show, 13 Reasons Why, which talked about a uh, high school student taking her own life and then how people may have contributed from their actions or inactions to her taking her own life. But I might talk about that soon. Um, there will be a lot of spoilers if I do talk about it. It was an interesting show, but talking about how people in both the things that they did and also by not doing certain things um, didn't or contributed in some way to her taking her life from her perspective. And we want to make sure that we do everything we can to help take care of and protect our loved ones. So if you think someone is feeling really down or you see them feeling really down, don't be afraid to ask that question, to initiate that conversation. At worst, it's something awkward, and at best, it can be something that saves their life, which to me makes it worth having that conversation. So I'll continue to talk about suicide on this show because it's so important for me to encourage people and to make sure we don't make it or keep it a taboo and have stigma on even talking about it. We have to make it more okay. Um, to conclude the show, a few programming notes. Again, the book for this coming week will be Self-Hell by Sirenaz Amanat. You can order the book um, at sirenazamanat.com. I'm going to post a picture and uh, a link on my social media because it's a book that's not available on lots of bookstores but is available through her website and is a picture book that looks at different emotions and emotional experiences and I think it's very interesting how it does capture these feelings in a beautiful way sometimes uh, or oftentimes an image can really describe an emotion much better than words can and I think she's done a great job of doing that so I hope you will get the book so that you can join in the conversation uh, this coming Monday a week from today June 26th at 8 p.m. I'll be joined by the author and illustrator of the book to talk about it. And also this Wednesday, two days from today, I'll be joined by psychologist Dr. Melody Levian to talk about postpartum depression. This is something that is very often misunderstood and actually worse than that, sometimes people don't even really know it exists or there's so much stigma around it. When a woman gives birth, she's expected to be happy you know, this is supposed to be the best thing that's ever happened to her. But we know that many women, it's quite common for women to experience postpartum blues and even more severely postpartum depression. And because of this idea that they're supposed to be so happy, it makes women suffer even more who are going through this. So Dr. Melody Levian will be with me Wednesday to talk much more deeply about this issue of postpartum depression, what it is, what it isn't, how to potentially spot the signs and what you can do to help yourself or loved one who might be going through it. I'm very 
happy to have her on the show to talk about this very, very important topic. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio, everyone out there listening. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you.